2: This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nopithanchel. Maternity care is so important for the health of mothers and babies. Depending on where you live in Connecticut, your options to have your baby at a local hospital are limited. Coming up, Connecticut Public Radio's health reporter Nicole Leonard joins us to talk about why several Connecticut hospitals have suspended or are planning to suspend their labor and delivery services. What impact will that have on rural communities in our state? That's later. First, let's start with some good news for Connecticut residents. Over the last year, workers have been paying into the paid family leave program after the legislature and Governor Lamont signed it into law a couple years back. Connecticut now joins eight other states and Washington, D.C. with paid family leave. And starting next year in 2022, Connecticut's program will start paying out benefits for new parents and for caregivers. Joining us now with more is Andrea Barton Reeves, CEO of Connecticut's Paid Leave Authority. It's the quasi-governmental agency created by statute to administer the paid leave program. Andrea, welcome back.
0: Thank you for having me, Lucy. And
2: listeners, if you, have, if you have questions about Connecticut's Paid Family Leave program, you can join us, 888-720-9677. That's 888 720 WMPR. You can share a question or comment on Facebook or find us on Twitter at Where We Live. Now, Andrea, I understand that Connecticut Paid Leave will start accepting applications for benefits this week. So tell us about, um, again, the program and, and how residents can become eligible.
0: Yeah, so thank you again, Lucy, for having me. The program was signed into law last July, actually the July before, July 2019. And it did two things. It authorized the creation of the paid leave authority, which I'm a part of, and it also created paid family and medical leave for the state of Connecticut. So in a nutshell, you can take up to 12 weeks of leave for qualifying reasons to take care of your own serious health condition or that of a family member. There's also leave available if you are serving in active duty, you've been injured, a family member can take time off to take care of you. Or if you're being deployed overseas, a family member can also take time off to help you prepare for that deployment. And as you mentioned at the top of the hour, one of the reasons that you can take leave is if you are, uh, if you are having a baby or expecting a new child into your family through foster care or adoption, there is time to be taken to have the baby and there's also bonding leave. The last reason that you can take family leave in Connecticut is if you are a victim of domestic or family violence, you can take up to 12 days of leave in order to address the issues that arise where they start to from family violence. So starting tomorrow, we will be opening the application process for paid family and medical leave benefits for those events that begin on or after January 1 of 2022.
2: So there's an online uh, site that uh, residents need to go to to start the application process. Can you briefly walk us through that?
0: Yes, it's the same website that people are familiar with, I hope, which is ctpaidleave.org there are, are actually five ways that you can apply for benefits. But if you go online, you'll find what those are. You can apply online, email, fax, mail, and I should remember the fifth one, which is escaping me right now. Uh, or you can, you can uh, yes, yeah, so you can apply online, which I think I already said. So I think actually there's four ways that you can apply. Uh, and because we realize that not everyone is technologically savvy or have access to technology. And we really didn't want to create any barriers for anyone who wants to apply for the paid leave benefit that everyone's paying for through the half a percent contribution from every paycheck.
2: That's right. That was my next question, that over the last year, people who are working, they've seen half a percent taken out of their paycheck. And so how much is in this trust fund currently, Andrea?
0: right now there is a little over 300 million dollars in the trust fund and that is what will be used to pay the paid leave benefits when they start to be payable in january which is the month after next it just seems like it's just snuck up on us and comes so quickly we often get questions about people who may be on leave now but are interested in taking a paid leave benefit in january and the answer is that if you've already started a leave in this year and you believe that your leave qualifies for a paid leave benefit, you can still submit an application. And then we will determine whether or not the leave that you're seeking meets the criteria. And if it in fact does, then you can receive paid leave benefits for the remainder of the time that you would have been on the leave that qualifies.
2: Now, again, you're hearing Andrea Barton-Reeves, CEO of Connecticut's Paid Leave Authority, as we talk about Connecticut's Paid Leave Program. Again, they're going to start accepting applications tomorrow, December 1st, at that website, and other ways, as Andrea mentioned. But the website is ctpaidleave.org. Uh, Andrea, I, mem- I remember when I've had you on, and previously after the, the it became law, and there were questions about uh, administering this program and employers understanding how the program Uh, Works, So I'm just wondering if you can talk about, you know, how many total employers are registered to date? And is there a penalty if by law businesses are required to um, have this uh, program um, accessible and their employees uh, don't have access to it? Can you talk us through that?
0: Sure. So, Lucy, the last time you and I spoke, we had a little under 40,000 employers register. And today we have close to 124,000 employers that are registered with the paid leave authority. So we're always very grateful and want to thank the business community in Connecticut for really pushing through some very difficult times to be compliant with this act because we know it hasn't been easy. For those employers that haven't registered yet, it's still important to do so. But if you haven't withheld the one half of a percent, only the Department of Labor can give you authority to withhold that money retroactively. We can't do that at the pay leave authority because it, it's a wage and hour issue, quite frankly, that we don't have any jurisdiction over. We have the authority and the power to impose penalties for those businesses that haven't complied. But to date, we've chosen not to do that because we know that businesses are really struggling to get back on their feet as we try to be post pandemic. So we've taken a more cooperative and collaborative approach in terms of reaching out to those businesses that we've identified who have not yet registered and asked to them if there's a way that we can help. And quite frankly, that is how we got from the 41,000 to the 123, almost 124,000 was taking that approach. But starting next year, we will most likely start to impose some form of penalty that our board of directors approves for those businesses that we've reached out to repeatedly and still are not compliant. Mm -hmm. I don't have a sense of what that will be right now. As I said, our board will be uh, considering what those penalties will be, but it's really important that whether or not you as an employer choose to offer your own version of the plan, which is a, which is available to you under the statute, or you participate in the public plan, if you have one or more employees, you you are required by law to participate.
2: You can join our conversation, 888 720 or find us on Facebook and Twitter, at where we live. Do you know how many employers um, are still not in compliance?
0: I do, we think the number is about 12,000 and and that number can be misleading because there are a number of businesses that unfortunately because of the pandemic are no longer going concerns and the definition of business under the statute or employer which is really more specific it's it's the employer is very broad so it can include our large large businesses that are in the state that have thousands of employees It can also include a person who is uh, hiring caregivers for themselves or for a family member. And we found that we had a lot of people who were actually hiring caregivers and didn't realize that they were considered employers under the statute and needed to withhold that half a percent. And that's one of the reasons we were so reluctant to impose penalties, because we know that there's, even though we've given close to 100 webinars, we know that there's still a lot of education to be done, and we really want to help people be compliant.
2: I wanted to circle back uh, there. you said there are businesses who may offer um, their own version of this. And so can you talk a little bit more about what that means and then will you also be overseeing and making sure that you know their private plan um, you know follows uh, the, the the statute?
0: Yes. The statute gives employers who are covered by it two options. You can withhold the half a percent and participate in the public plan, which is what the Pay leave authority oversees and has the money in the trust fund. Or you can create as an employer your own private plan. And you do so by applying to the Pay leave authority. We have criteria that you must meet statutorily, certain documentation that you must provide to us. And once that plan is approved, it remains approved for three years with the uh, opportunity for us to audit the plan to make sure it remains compliant with the law and the policy that you offered your employees. We do plan to audit those plans and the audit schedule and the audit criteria are being developed and those will be distributed to those employers who have private plans. We have about 368 employers that have private plans right now. A few of them are large, but most of them are very small. And when I say that they are between three and 25 employees they often do this because they'd rather have all of the benefits that they offer their employees in one place or they're already offering some form of paid leave on their own and they prefer to have this program incorporated in what it is that they're doing and we found that the private plan employers have actually done an excellent job an excellent job in standing up their plans and we've had a great and cooperative relationship with them Uh, And the key here is that we really just want everyone to be compliant. So whether you choose a public plan or you choose to create your own private plan that's compliant, we're fine with that as long as people have access to a paid leave benefit pursuant to the statute. You know,
2: this uh, paid leave program uh, sounds uh, like such a godsend for so many uh, families, especially from what we have learned in this pandemic, Andrea. Um, You know, before paid leave, you know, families had to think about, you know, using up all their vacation and sick time and then taking unpaid leave. And, you know, that can cause a lot of financial instability. And and now this is something that residents can, um, you know, apply for and have that peace of mind. Uh, What has it been like uh, you know, setting up this uh, program again during the pandemic?
0: It has been challenging, as you might imagine. There's already a challenge inherent in standing up a brand new public program. But I would have to say that our state agency partners, and that would include the Department of Administrative Services, the Office of the Treasurer, the Office of the State Controller, the Department of Labor, and I'm sure I will leave a uh, and the Department of Insurance, I'm sure I'll I'll leave an agency out and hope that they can forgive me, have just been extraordinary in helping us to get the authority stood up and running. We were very committed to making sure that that happened and that it happened on time and it happened within the resources that we had available to us in order to do this and so i wouldn't say that it was without its challenges but we've had some wonderful partners that have helped us have, that have helped us to make it a reality today so we're on time the statute said benefits need to be available on january no later than february 2022 and we're going to be able to do that with respect to the families who will benefit from this program we really are just inundated with communication from families who are just so ready to access this benefit. People who have planned to have their children uh, either through birth adoption or foster care, people who have put off needed surgeries and other kinds of health care needs because they just couldn't afford to take the time away from work and be without pay in order to attend to their needs or the needs of a loved one. And we often hear, this is part of the great part of, with, of working at the paid leave authority is, is how this program is life-changing for people. And we expect to hear more of that as time moves forward. And we're Andrea, happy and really honored to do the work. Yes.
2: Andrea, I want to take a, a quick question from Alex or comment uh, in New Haven. Sure. Alex, go ahead. Good morning. Alex, Thank go you ahead. very much for
0: taking. Hi. Good morning. Thank you
3: for taking my good call. Good morning. Um, just- just want to say this I'm a huge fan of this law. I think it's excellent that it's sort of being expanded to more and more people who didn't have access to this kind of thing. But my wife and I are both independent school, high school teachers who, as I understand it, do not qualify for this law, even though we are expecting a child in February. And I'm curious as to why, um, because we're non-union teachers, so it's not like we have other benefits in this regard. Um, I'm curious sort of as to why and what can we do to help expand this to even more people, including us, selfishly, but you know, our colleagues and
0: other people like us. Thank you, Alex. Thank you, and congratulations. Alex, you are right. The law, as it's currently drafted, excludes those that work at private and independent schools. And that is really because a number of private and independent schools do not currently participate in family and medical leave in the state of Connecticut. So the statute was drafted in a way that continues to exclude those that work at private and independent schools from coverage. The best thing I can tell you is that if you'd like to see that changed is really to speak to your legislators about why that change is important, especially where you are in your stage in your life. And others, I'm sure some of your colleagues are also very interested in seeing a change. But as the statute is currently drafted, you are correct. Uh, Your workplace is excluded from coverage under the law.
2: You know, earlier I asked you how much money was in the trust fund today, and I believe you said 300 million. That sounds like a lot of money. But what happens, Andrea, if uh, the amount paid out in benefits exceeds how much is in the trust fund?
0: Statutorily, we have a couple of options, but let me say this. We've had a number of actuarial analyses conducted with with the trust fund, and it remains solvent through at least the next five years, if not longer. We only had the authorities, uh, we only had the actuarial analysis done through the last five years. So we're really not concerned about it running out of money. If it does, we have the ability to adjust the amount of benefit that is available as an option. And then I would imagine that our legislators may take a look at whether or not other options might be available. But right now that's the one that's available by law. But as I said, as things stand, we're right on where we should be with the amount of money we should have collected. And we don't anticipate that we will run out.
2: Uh, we mentioned earlier that this will be open to new parents, both moms and dads. But when we think about um, co- coming up, we're going to be talking about labor and delivery services in our state. And I'm wondering if you could just ex- you know, expand on when we think about this benefit for expectant moms, um, if they run into complications um, after uh, delivery, um, what's uh, available to them, Andrea?
0: Sure. The statute allows for up to 12 weeks of leave for childbirth, which is in pregnancy, which is considered a serious health condition. If you experience complications during pregnancy, your healthcare provider can indicate that, and you may be eligible for an additional two weeks of leave in order to address the complication. It could be bed rest, it could be preeclampsia, any of the complications that can come during pregnancy. There is additional time that's available, which is really uh, very reassuring and a godsend for expectant moms because pregnancy can, can be exciting and harrowing all at once. So to have that additional reassurance that you can have a little extra time seems to really be resonating well with people.
2: Andrea Barton-Reeves, again, is CEO of Connecticut's Paid Leave Authority. You can learn more about the application process and the program itself at ctpaidleave.org. Andrea, thanks for coming on.
0: Thank you for having me.
2: This is Where We Live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Coming up after the break, we find out why some local hospitals have suspended or plan to suspend labor and delivery services. So residents living near Sharon Hospital or Wyndham Hospital or Johnson Memorial Hospital in Stafford Springs, this may apply to you. We hope you join our conversation, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live.
0: This is
2: where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalbethanschel. If you're expecting a baby, your options to have your baby delivered at a local hospital may be limited, depending on where you live. Earlier this month, Connecticut Public Radio's health reporter, Nicole Leonard, reported on why some Connecticut hospitals have suspended or are planning to suspend their labor and delivery services. This includes Wyndham Hospital in the eastern part of the state. Now, what impact will this have on local residents, especially in our rural communities? You can join us 888-720-9677 or find us on facebook and twitter at where we live nicole leonard joins us now on zoom nicole welcome back thanks for having me lucy so your story i believe uh, came out of a public hearing that was held earlier this month can you tell us about that hearing and you know why are hospitals looking at labor and delivery services at the place that they may need to suspend
1: so the hearing a couple of weeks ago was uh, it was called a certificate of need hearing. A lot of people aren't familiar with this, but what it, it essentially it is, is it's a state agency. The Office of Health Strategy requires certain hospitals, health organizations, health providers to apply to them for a certificate of need whenever they make changes to their services. That could be an expansion of services, it could be a closure as in in this case, Um, but they have to ask the state basically for permission to make changes. And so the hearing a couple of weeks ago was uh, on behalf of Wyndham Hospital, which is owned by Hartford HealthCare. And they're asking the state permission to permanently close their labor and delivery unit at their hospital in Willimantic. And this hearing is basically essentially to hear from the hospital leaders about why they want to close the labor and delivery services, but to also hear from the community feedback from people who live in Willimantic or in that area that gets served by the hospital to hear their concerns or issues with these proposed plans. And the hearing last week, it basically came down to that the hospital uh, leaders had said that there were so few um, births happening at the hospital year after year. And I think for the last couple of years, it's hovered around a hundred births per year that it actually, the hospital leaders say it became unsafe to give birth at the volume because the professionals at the hospital weren't getting enough practice to use their skills and to use their knowledge in delivering babies. And um, research points to, you know, the more experience you have in doing this, the more you might be prepared for complications or things that may happen, unexpected things that may happen during childbirth. Um, but there was a robust community uh, that came back and said that they also recognize that, um, you know, they, they of course want safe births to happen uh, in their community as well, but they fear that this closure of a labor and delivery unit will disproportionately hurt the town's were the area's most vulnerable residents. And so that's where we left off is that certificate of need hearing. And we we don't yet have a decision from the state as to whether the hospital can permanently close their labor and delivery unit. Mm.
2: And certainly what the hospital shared about making sure that they have the professionals and to make sure it's a safe birth is important. But also, there's a lot of money uh, that uh, these departments may think about having to staff a department 24-7 and you have fewer patients. So cost is definitely at play here, too, Nicole? Yeah, cost
1: is definitely at play. I mean, there are... It comes down to the financial challenges, right? That that hospitals may face. Labor and delivery, not just for Wyndham Hospital, but a lot of hospitals across the country, they're not money makers. Um, and, and that makes sense because um not only in the United States, but globally, fertility rates have been dropping, birth rates have been dropping. Um, people just aren't having either as many kids or people are not having kids at all. And so, you know, this has become an area of health care that has not grown in comparison to other areas of healthcare that are really in high demand. However, that doesn't mean that babies are, aren't being born anymore, right? There are a lot of babies still being born. And so um, hospitals have to look at the need of, of these people who are still giving birth in their communities and, and want safe uh, uh, deliveries uh, nearby their homes with the fact that this is probably not an area of health care that they're going to make money off of they are probably and, and this is the case with uh, some of the hospitals that are petitioning to close their labor and delivery services that they, in fact, will likely lose money in this area of healthcare. but it's still an important health health care service that is needed.
2: So there's Wyndham Hospital where this public hearing focused on their uh, certificate of need uh, to close labor and delivery. But there's also, I believe, Sharon Hospital that's interested in suspending uh, birthing services. And then the Connecticut Mirror report on Johnson Memorial in Stafford Springs. And so Nicole, uh, same uh, reasons behind uh, the hospital wanting to end uh, these this department.
1: So it's interesting. Um, you know, there are some general similarities between the uh, hospitals that have uh, petitioned to state to permanently close their labor and delivery services. And with the case with uh, Wyndham Hospital and Johnson Memorial, they have actually already closed their services. um they they call it an indefinite suspension of services pending a state final decision on the closure of their units. Um, And I I talked to you a little bit about Wyndham's reasons for for closing. There's it's a mix of, you know, low birth volume, not enough qualified obstetricians to consistently staff. The labor and delivery unit making it unsafe as well as the financial concerns over at Sharon Hospital. It's a little bit different. They um, they do have enough staff and then they have said publicly that they are confident they can still deliver have safe deliveries. They're averaging about uh, a little over 200 births for the last couple of years. Um, but what they have said in community forums and discussions with um, local leaders in, in that part of Connecticut is that, uh, due to the financial loss of providing these services, that is the main reason why they are petition. They are going to. They have the intention to petition the state to uh, to permanently close their labor and delivery services and basically use the money that they have to redirect into other services that are a much higher demand, um, such as behavioral health care, some emergency services. Um, And so their situation is a little bit different than Wyndham Hospital, um, but they still have overlapping concerns about what this will do to the local communities and the the populations they serve right now with with labor and delivery.
2: You're hearing Nicole Leonard here on Where We Live, Connecticut Public Health reporter, as we talk again about uh, the reasons why um, some hospitals uh, that um, serve rural communities in our state uh, want to suspend or close their labor and delivery services. We're talking about Wyndham Hospital, that's on the eastern part of the state, uh, near Willimantic also. uh, We've got Sharon Hospital on the western part of the state. And then there's Johnson Memorial up at Stafford Springs. So that's like North Central. If you live in these communities and you're concerned about uh, this. We'd love to hear from you, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Nicole, so what are the options for someone who lives in Wyndham or Willimantic uh, who is pregnant in term and they want to deliver at a hospital? Where will they go? Well, we've
1: already been seeing this play out a little bit because the hospital, uh, what they call an indefinite suspension of their services, that happened last at the beginning of last summer um, in the middle of the pandemic. And so since about June of 2020, women have been transported, women who are delivering, have been transported to other area hospitals to deliver. Most of them have been going to Bacchus Hospital, uh, which is also owned by Hartford HealthCare. And then some other women have the choice of going to other area hospitals. um, If they're having a, a, a typical uh, pregnancy. Obviously, people who are identified early as having a high risk pregnancy, they may have already been directed to hospitals that have, you know, specialized surgeons on hand or neonatal intensive care units, um, and so they they have already made those plans. But for everybody else, um, they have been transported to other area hospitals, and it could be between, you know, depending on if you take your car or. Or if you take an ambulance, it could be anywhere between 15 minutes and 35 minutes or even 45 minutes if it's if it's bad weather. And so they have been the hospital has been providing transportation for people who need it to these hospitals. Uh, they are still offering prenatal care and postpartum care, but they are no longer offering the obstetrical services, which is actually the labor mm-hmm. and delivery. And so all the, the uh, families in this area have had to go to other hospitals just for the delivery.
2: Mm-hmm. Let's hear from the community. Joining us now is Ilda Ray. She's on the local school board and chairperson of the windham Willimantic NAACP's education committee. Ilda, welcome to the show.
5: Thank you. Thank you for having me.
2: And so uh, you're working alongside other grassroots groups uh, like Wyndham United to save our health care, concerned about uh, this decision or this pending decision to close uh, labor and delivery permanently. Can you talk through your concerns as
5: a community member? Well, my concern is, well, when we first received the notice, it was in the newspaper that they were going to suspend their service uh, for labor and delivery. The unions were notified in the spring of last year. Then in June, Hartford Healthcare announced the permanent closure of our maternity unit. This is an 88-year service, local service to our community. Then Hartford Healthcare filed a certificate of need after the closure, which I hear that is it's illegal. Yes, I understand that the birth rates have gone down, but this this is a local hospital, and if our women the predomin- this is a predominantly Hispanic community. This is a violation of their civil rights if they can't get proper health care. In August about... of 2020, I'm sorry. Go ahead, go ahead, Elda. August of 2020, there was a public Zoom held by Harford HealthCare to explain the future of childbirth at Wyndham Hospital. And um, we united, it's called WHOOSH, like you said, Wyndham United to Save Our Healthcare Care, began grassroots movement in September of last year. Representative Susan Johnson went on the radio show on W L I L I, our local radio station. She mentioned things that we could do, like surveying women and families affected by the closure, petitioning, signing, going door to door, which of course we couldn't do because of the pandemic. We had Zoom meetings, articles in the paper, festivals, or boombox parades, which unfortunately didn't happen last year. But these were things we could we could do: flashlight vigil, online petitions, over a dozen community organizations formed. Four towns declared to support the reopening, which of course was Wyndham, Mansfield, Ashford, and Coventry. Even Attorney General Tong. Issued statements to support the reopening and return of community funds taken by Hartford Healthcare. November tenth. I'm oh, sorry, Elda, Go I, ahead. I just,
2: I wanted to just circle back on something that you would said that um, an action that Wyndham Hospital uh, did that was illegal. And so, uh, Nicole Leonard, you've been covering this again. So this needs permission, right, from uh, the state uh, Office of Health Strategy, I believe, or you probably have the, the, the right uh, department in front of you, but that they have to approve this. And so talk through what um, Ilda is referring to in terms of the, how the
1: process rolled out. Right. So the process should, the way it should be done is that before services are changed, before uh, any closures, expansion, modifications are made, um, you're supposed to apply to the State Office of Health strategy. You had it right. Mm -hmm. Um, and, And you're supposed to basically provide a lot of documentation and evidence as to why the need of the community has changed or, you know, the hospital's needs, and then await that state decision on whether you can go ahead and do it or not. And so in this case with Wyndham Hospital, a lot of people in the community, people who have, who have you know, were involved in writing this policy many years ago, and it was, you know, became required in Connecticut, um, they say that um, the way Wyndham Hospital has done this, that they had called an indefinite suspension and then announced their plans to permanently close the unit and that they haven't provided labor and delivery services since June of 2020 and that they're only we're only now, you know it was several months later that they filed a, an official certificate of need. People say that that was incorrect. That was not following state policy on how to do this. And so now we're in a situation where we're waiting um, a state decision on whether the hospital can close this unit, but it's been closed for quite a while now already.
2: And uh, Ilda, going back to you, you said that this is predominantly a Hispanic community. But when we think about um, the Wyndham Willamantic community, where there's high poverty, maybe low rates of vehicle ownership, and other, uh, you know, poor public transit options, uh, what Nicole said earlier about making sure that there's at least an ambulance to take uh, people to Bacchus—is that something
5: that you think will um, help remedy the situation? Not at all. This 30 to 45 minute ambulance ride down 32, or Route 6 puts mothers and newborns at risk. This is, this is not acceptable. There is a woman that we know of that lived two blocks from the hospital. And she was told she couldn't go there to give birth. And she was transported to Bacchus Hospital in Norwich. She ended up giving birth in the ambulance on Route 32.
2: Nobody wants that, right? <laughs> Don't no, nobody deliver off this the side of the dangerous. highway. <laughs> uh, again, you can join us, 888-720-9677, as we talk about um, why some hospitals that serve rural communities are looking at suspending or have suspended labor and delivery services. Heather is calling in. I, Heather, I understand you're a labor and delivery nurse. Uh, what's your take on this situation?
3: Uh, yeah, well, I, I live in Mansfield, so right there, uh, Wyndham is in my backyard, and, um, I testified at the hearing a few weeks ago. I, I have 20 years experience in women's health and labor and delivery, and I have a doctorate in nursing focused on vulnerable populations, so this is really, really important to me. Um, I, I really feel like Hartford Hospital or Hartford Healthcare didn't explore all options before they um, made made this decision. The the women really and the families in the area really deserve reproductive services in their own community. And it isn't safe to transport them other places in some situations. And I agree with them that you know they do have to make sure that their staff is well trained and has practice and has seen, you know, what to do in emergencies. There, the model that they were using, having locum tenants come in for, you know, like essentially traveling temporary physicians, you know, that, that's not the best situation. Um, but there are other things that they could have done. It is a large health system. They could have had a rotation system where nurses and physicians and midwives who normally would work at higher ac- acuity and higher volume places would rotate through and, you know, do those shifts at at Wyndham Hospital. Um, they also could have partnered with some of the state's midwifery schools to become a cutting-edge training ground. We're always looking for um, clinical placements and opportunities for advanced practice nurses to um, gain experience and for nursing students to grant gain experience. It, it would have been a great opportunity uh, to partner with some of those um, schools like Yale and uh, Fairfield University, who they both have midwifery programs. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the UK model, in, in many places in the United Kingdom, midwives run the hospitals. And yes, there are physicians there, of course, um, and there are physicians who would provide C-sections or surgeries if needed, but the hospitals themselves are run, the maternity hospitals are run by midwives. Um, And the outcomes are better than our outcomes here in the United States. Um, And I also want to mention that before I moved to Connecticut, I worked, I lived and worked in Vermont. And I worked at um, a critical access facility, which is a very, very small hospital in a very remote or rural location. They get certain government funding, but they have to have you know meet certain criteria we were geographically isolated we were a 25-bed hospital very small but we had to maintain certain services in order to meet the criteria and we had a birthing center there our birth so in theory you know our in catchment area was very small very limited but we instead of closing or limiting services we became like the destination to to give birth. People would travel long distances to get their women's health and maternity family care at the facility and then to deliver there because the care was so outstanding. Mm-hmm. Our outcomes were fantastic. Um, so that hospital took the situation and made it into a benefit for the community, for the hospital um You know, so there are things that could have been done that I don't think were explored. And the outcome is going to be that women and families in need are are going to suffer. This
2: is Heather. Thank problem. you. Thank you for uh, again uh, giving us your perspective. Uh, you made a lot of great points, and this sounds like a another show that we need to do to talk about uh, maternity uh, care in our country. My mother was also a nurse midwife, so I hear you on that. On the passion and the outcomes of uh, the many uh, health professionals uh, that are there uh, for for women and their families. Um, I just want to take another quick call before we head to break. Uh, Deborah is calling in from Sharon. In Connecticut, Deborah, what did you want to share?
6: Well, I unfortunately missed this last caller because I'm not allowed to listen while I'm waiting on the phone. But I think she spoke to a lot of what we're trying to. We are in the same issue as as you know. They tried to close our labor and delivery down two years ago uh, in 2018, and we were able to stop it, to postpone it basically, and then during the pandemic they've just decided it wasn't making them enough money which frankly is a hideous hideous reason why does why does everything have to make money they well, hospitals benefit from the loyalty that is created when a family gives birth in the hospital and then they go back to the same hospital for their care and that's where that The labor and delivery has never been a moneymaker. So that to me is not even a viable reason to shut these things down.
2: Well, Deborah, uh, we we need to head to break soon, but thank you for calling in. Nicole, because she brought up Sharon Hospital, just reiterate for us where that stands uh, in terms of them seeking a certificate of need for their services.
1: Fairington Hospital hasn't yet officially applied for a certificate of need, uh, and they're in a different. It's not the same situation as Wyndham Hospital and Johnson Memorial. They haven't suspended their labor and delivery services yet. they those are still active. And as far as I can tell from their plans to the community and what they have um, talked to them about, they have said that they intend to phase out labor and delivery services pending the state's decision. So it doesn't seem like they are going to um, be in a violation of the certificate of need process where they you know, uh, close services before the certificate of need, but certainly announcing that they have the intention to close um, the labor and delivery unit there—it definitely poses some problems in, you know, how how they'll keep physicians on for months, perhaps more than a year, uh, and ask them to stay on, knowing that the the unit is going to close eventually, mm-hmm. or yeah, it may yeah. may close eventually, depending on the yeah. state's decision.
2: Again, you're hearing Nicole Leonard, who's Connecticut Public's health reporter. I wanna thank Ilda Ray for joining us to give us the perspective from the Wyndham Willimantic community um, about, uh, again, this uh, proposal uh, now before uh, the state uh, to permit to Wyndham Hospital to uh, permanently close their labor and delivery services. Uh, Ilda Ray is also the chair of the Wyndham Willimantic NAACP's education committee. Ilda, thank you for coming on the show. Uh, we're gonna continue talking right after the break Again, you can join us, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. We've been talking about why some hospitals and rural communities in Connecticut have suspended or planned to end labor and delivery services. Health reporter for Connecticut Public, Nicole Leonard, has been with us, and we've spent a lot of time talking about Wyndham Hospital, owned by Hartford Healthcare, Because they're not on the show, I just want to reiterate what they have shared, that uh, Wyndham Hospital continue to offer a comprehensive women's health services, including prenatal and postpartum care for mothers and and babies and welcoming new patients and the only difference again for expecting mothers uh, is that they will coordinate their delivery at either Bacchus Hospital which is uh, about as we heard from our guests about a 25-30 minute, uh, minutes then it's away from Wyndham Hospital or at a hospital of their choosing I wanted to hear another perspective joining us now is John Brady who's the executive vice president of AFT Connecticut which represents more than 90 local unions including healthcare professionals John welcome
4: Thank you. Thank you for having me.
2: Um, you're, you're also a registered nurse, I believe. And so can you talk through, as we think about labor and delivery and why it's so hard for hospitals uh, when they say they can't sustain this financially? This isn't just happening in Connecticut. We're seeing this uh, across the country in rural communities.
4: Yeah, that's true. And, you know, in some ways, Connecticut is, is um, in a better state um, of affairs because we do have a certificate of need process. Not every state has that um so yeah it, it, it it's difficult um it costs them money to run labor and delivery it's not a money maker um and frankly emergency rooms are not money makers either but those are those are the way people enter a hospital on um, money makers of course are, are surgeries and, and many of the outpatient things um so you know it, it, if they if they can save some money by closing one labor and delivery unit and still keep that business by having that business go to a sister hospital that they own, then on a, from a financial standpoint, they they come out better. Um, the question is, what obligation do they have to the people of the area, to the residents of Connecticut? They are, you know, they are entrusted with the care of the people of Connecticut, um, and they're not a business, they're a hospital. Um, And yes, they have to be run efficiently, but they have to take care of the people of Connecticut first.
2: Uh, Do you believe that there's a loophole in the process now, again, with uh, hospitals able to um, suspend um, labor and delivery services, especially in the pandemic, and then to say, well, you know, we don't have the the proper staff now, it's not safe, Um, but yet they still need that, the state to um, actually accept that uh, through the certificate of need. What's your take?
4: I think well, There's two issues here. I think one is um, the argument that it's not safe to continue births at Wyndham because the numbers have declined. The question there is: Have the numbers declined because Hartford Healthcare has manufactured low numbers? You know, in in up until 2014, they were delivering almost 400 um, babies a year at Wyndham Hospital, and in 2015 it dropped to just over 200, and it, and it's dropped even more since then. Now you know, they stopped doing certain types of births, which what they considered high-risk births, um, um, a vaginal birth after a C-section, they stopped doing those at Wyndham. That's a a business decision that they made. And it wasn't because of a safety issue that they weren't doing those successfully. Um, So, you know, our concern is first that they've manufactured the low numbers to justify what they've done. Now, they've also gone ahead and, Stopped having labor and delivery, and then sought approval. Mm-hmm. Um, and we feel like th- that's a growing trend. I think other other um, hospital systems seem to be learning from Hartford Healthcare, um, and they're trying to do it. Um, Johnson Memorial um, uh, suspended theirs and had not applied for a certificate of need until we asked um, the Office of Health Strategy to look into that. And now they're being told either either resume uh, labor and delivery at Johnson or apply for a certificate of need. So mm-hmm. it's a growing thing. And I think that's probably something that legislators are going to be looking at this year and next year um, about whether we need to tighten that up um, some more.
2: I'm glad that you brought up legislators and we heard that Attorney General Tong has also um, delivered comments uh, before that public hearing. And Nicole, when we think about uh, next steps, uh, did you want to respond uh, what, to what John shared?
1: John's exactly right. It's, you know, it's how it seems there's uh, different interpretations of what the certificate of need requirements might be. you know, what people can and cannot do under the current rules, if they can, you know, indefinitely suspend uh, is, a, you know, use that as a different terminology than permanently close um, in order to move forward with a certificate of needs. So it'll be interesting to see if um, the state laws uh, change on that matter. But in terms of going forward, I mean, you know, it, it, hospitals that have, you um, either gone forward and applied for the certificate of need already closed their delivery services or intend to close their delivery services it really is the local communities and the populations that they have been serving for many years who will who will be impacted the most um, whether it's you know transportation or um, you know, having family close by at the hospital that they deliver at, whether it's language barriers or you know there are different income you know considerations to take into account, um, we will be seeing uh, those repercussions for for quite a while um, after if these closures uh, do happen. And, and just on the flip side, Lucy, there are there is research on the national level that definitely recognizes that the low low volume uh, hospitals, low birth volume hospitals, do suffer from that lack of practice uh, that could potentially lead to more complications. But on on the other side, they've also recognized that the loss of some obstetrical services in rural or underserved populations have also had a detrimental effect On the local communities and the families that live there. And
2: we'll have to leave it there. It'll also be interesting to see if there'll be more emergency room births uh, when you hear about uh, hospitals closing particular units uh, at local uh, facilities. Again, Nicole Leonard here with us, Connecticut Public Health Reporter. I want to thank John Brady, Executive Vice President of AFT Connecticut. I'm Lucy nall Today's show produced by Katie Pellico.